Hello and welcome to another edition of Thank Zook It's Friday, the IT news podcast from Computing. As usual, I'm Stuart Sumner and I'm joined by Tom Allen and John Leonard, all from Computing. So before we dive into the news, um, as usual, let's chat about our weeks. Uh, Tom, what's been going on with you? Uh, in real life, very little. Uh, Whistling lockdown. However, I have become a Viking in video games. So I'm playing Valheim, uh, something that John is going to be really interested in, I'm sure. Yeah, that's a game that is uh, sweeping the um, the uh, sort of uh, gaming news sites at the moment. Anyway, Valheim seems to be really popular. Well, and it's, an... it's, does it live up to the hype? Yeah, I think it does for an early access game. It's got five million people playing it now. It's pretty impressive. Uh, put out a really affordable price point. It's fifteen pounds, um, twenty dollars. And um, it honestly seems like a finished game. So it, it's very good, um, fun. I've never been one for survival games or, or the Minecraft-esque building type games, but uh, it's, it's good fun. It takes a lot of the pain points out of it. Um, and you can build some really massive fortresses and towers and just nice little houses near, near streams. Um, they use really low poly textures and things um, for, for your character which means they really, the landscapes look amazing. So they, they use the saved resources to bump up the landscape looks and they have lovely sunbeams and, uh, and things like that. It's, it's seen, a very, very pretty game. It certainly does does look good. I think there's there is there is something um, that I that concerns me um, about spending all our you know under lockdown spending all your sort of work time just at your desk on your computer and then spending all your free time at your desk on your computer. Um, as, as speaking as someone who's done a lot of that <laughs> over the last year, uh, I do wonder if that's quite the best policy um, for mental and physical health. But I guess you know we'll find out over the coming years. So when I become a slug who is merged with my chair, you can uh, dance around me and sprinkle salt on my withered corpse and just uh, sing that you were right. Yeah, I, might, I might just I might just do that. Um, John, you last played a computer game uh, when uh, in uh, which, which was Pong in about 1972. I was going to say Connect Four. Or, or Connect Four, yeah. Um, what's been going on in your week? No, no, no uh, computer games. Not very much actually. No, but um, I've had a similar, um, similarly non-eventful kind of week. I did get to try out um, a site called Copysmith AI just to try and work out how long it's going to be before we're all made redundant by AI. Did you say um, Copysmith? Copysmith. Um, what does that do? And what it does, it, it uses um, GPT-3, which is this sort of wonder algorithm, you know, which is meant to just be able to create whole novels if you just give it three words. I've seen Buzz awful. about it on Twitter. Sorry? I've seen Buzz about it on Twitter. Yeah. Okay, so, so so anyway, it's this algorithm that came out. Um, it's under Google, the the offshoot of Google, which I, I can't remember now. Um, created it. Oh, uh, OpenAI. Um, is that it? It sort no. of promises to be able to write sort of huge, you know, uh, huge amount of stuff just just from a few words. It doesn't really need to learn what you're writing about before it, or, or not very much anyway, before it gets gets a grasp. So I thought, oh dear. Um, that doesn't sound good as someone who, who uh, makes his living out of writing. So I did try this thing and I put in a few kind of techie terms like um, Kubernetes and Hadoop and this sort of stuff, see what it would come up with. And it was rubbish, which is very, very, very good news. That's it did sort of, uh, produce a lot of sort of PR kind of things like leading, leading uh, organization um, for a powerful solution and all, all this sort of stuff. So did it, then, did, it, did it then circle back a few yeah, days later to say, just wondered if you've seen this, John? Sorry? Did it then say circle back three days later? Just uh, <laughs> wondered if you've seen this. <laughs> it didn't yet. No, I, I expect probably that's the that's the uh, next phase. 
But anyway, the good news is we have nothing to worry about yet. Yet, yeah, but let's check on that in six months' time. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, it might be good if, if you get to that before, before any of the rest of us realise, we'll just all, all your, you just all your stories can be written by that. You can just type in a few keywords and then sit back and relax and not have to do any work. I told you, should I? No, you yeah. should exactly. I'll be I'll be checking that now. That's um, well, I guess that's um, that's sort of comforting and alarming in equal measure. Um, my week was was relatively exciting in that um, I thought I had COVID because. Uh, um, I had a fever um, over the weekend um, and a sore throat and generally felt really, really rubbish, um, which I put into the, into the tracking app. Do you guys use the COVID tracking apps? But you don't. Mm -hmm. You no, do? do? Good. Well yeah. done. Good boy. Oh, you do? Okay, good. Um, so, yeah, so uh, I, I, I got recommended to go for a test. So I went to the local testing centre, sort of, um, it's, all, it's not exactly drive through, it's walk through, but it's all very open air, um, and uh, which is great because I went on a very cold day when it was very rainy. Um, but... Uh, uh, yeah, I think one of the things that re that really kind of surprised me was uh, this, this, pl this place was in Streatham and the, the sort of regional COVID testing centre was right next to a really nice cafe. So I was kind of thinking, so all the people that think they've got COVID probably have a quick coffee <laughs> before or after their test in that cafe or the person that's driven them there or lives with them and probably has called it from them goes there. for a So that's got to be the COVIDiest cafe uh, in South London so I didn't it looked very alluring but I didn't go in partly because I you know I thought I had COVID at the time so I got my result today turns out I don't um, so it was a mystery other fever which god knows how I've managed to contract that given I've barely left the house and have been near and touched nobody that I'm not intimately related to in the last year um, but anyway that was my exciting week. Yes, you have something to talk about this week that's a good thing. Well, that was well, that was my first thought when I when I woke in the night with the sweating with a horrible fever. My first thought was, well, thank God, you know, I've got something to say at the podcast on on, on Friday. So, true. It's like you make for us. Exactly. Well, yeah. I mean, the other day I slipped on ice and bashed my face in, and then I thought, thought I caught COVID. I'm, That's I'm, true. I'm, You're having... I'm, I'm bleeding for this podcast and sweating. Um, anyway, uh, on to more yet? salubrious matters. Um, let's go in for some IT news. Um, John, what have you got for us? Um, just a little thing called the budget. I've heard of that. Um, and we canvassed the view from the, the tech industry. You know, we asked lots of people for comments. As usual, we got actually hundreds of them back, um, which I spent quite a long time filtering through. Um, to narrow down exactly what the tech industry is, is quite difficult. <clears throat> um, as you know, you can just sort of pick a shortened noun like fin or reg and then sort of add tech to it. And so pretty much everything is tech at the moment. So I tried to... Um, um, filter down the things that really um, will affect what we think of as being the, the tech industry anyway. Um, and the first thing was a new £520 million help to grow scheme that will offer help to up to 130,000 SMEs with um, equipment, tech skills, this sort of thing. And this was broadly welcomed by the um, IT sector, the, the people that we spoke to. Um, however, one person said that 520 million is a drop in the ocean compared to all the debt that all these companies have um, accrued during the COVID crisis. Yeah, and I, 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 I guess that's that, I guess that's true. Um, it, it doesn't. It's not going to go very far across 130,000 SMEs, though. That does make you think about the 130,000 and one and first um, uh, largest or most important SME in the country. Um, but at the same time, you know, I've, I've, there's been lots of reports about the zombie economy and uh, zombie companies and you know organisations that were in, in an ordinary course of events would have gone bust by now, being kept afloat by various schemes, especially the furlough scheme that have helped businesses go. So. Um, so yeah, I mean, do, do you think this guy has a point? Do you think more money should have been spent on this? Well, it's hard to say if it, if it should, but if you divide 520 million by 130,000, it comes to 4,000 pounds per company, 
which isn't a huge amount of money, obviously, although every little helps. Well, especially when you rack it up against the $1.9 trillion that um, Joe Biden's trying to push through for, yeah. his, I mean, uh, for, for the USA's is, COVID stimulus. This, this is, to, to be fair, just, just one uh, initiative. And one other person said, well, you know, maybe it's not very much, but at least the government is sort of targeting the right kind of areas, which is the sort of things that SMEs need to get up to speed on, which is tech, IT security, IT skills, you know, uh, training. I think you can get all of this with this with this particular fund. Although obviously, four thousand pounds per company is not going to go that far. They said, well, at least it's going towards a specific direction where it's needed, rather than just chucking money as a as a kind of anonymous grant. Um, also, there's a three hundred seventy five million UK wide future fund breakthrough, which is something we reported on um, last week, I think in which the government's going to invest in innovative companies uh, such as those in life sciences, quantum computing, clean tech. Um, and they're aiming to, the, the companies that can apply for this are those aiming to raise at least 20 million pounds of funding. So they're sort of the sort of larger end of the startup scale, I guess. Well, isn't that just pretty much saying these are the industries we expect and want to do well, so these are the ones we're going to invest in? It, it doesn't give other industries a chance to grow um, so it, is, it is sort of picking winners yes um, and that does have a bad name in in certain circles um, but if you think about it um, the big American tech firms a lot of them anyway Facebook Google Tesla um, they all got going through government um, picking winners um, they do it a lot in Germany South Korea obviously China you know so it, it's, it's a bit of a taboo thing in this country. Um, but um, one respondent, in this case, someone from an investment fund, described this as music to our ears. Um, another measure the government's doing is fast-tracking visa applications to attract highly skilled workers um, in a, moves aimed, a move aimed particularly at the fintech sector. Um, I recently saw a statistic that something like 40, 40% of people in the UK working in fintech are actually immigrants, uh, many from the EU. So this can be seen as patching the gaping hole left by Brexit. Um, predictably, it's gone down extremely well with those in fintech, uh, but also bodies like Tech UK, which represent the tech industry. Um, companies involved in green tech or clean tech were less impressed though, because they were hoping for a big boost from the government um, after all the pandemic talk of building back better, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and while there were some positives, the reaction seems to be that this was a missed opportunity. Um, but then at the same time, they, those companies are specifically referenced in the Future Fund Breakthrough Initiative. So they're, they're one of the, you know, that clean tech industry is one of those that, that, that can apply for funding there. So, uh, you know, it's, perhaps it's a missed opportunity for some initiatives, but not others. Um, the, the company that got back about that was actually a, a supplier to manufacturing companies, um, a, a big enterprise software uh, vendor. And they were saying, well, manufacturers want to be able to invest in changing their practices in sort of getting on board with all the new um, renewables and the other green technologies. And the budget hasn't done a great deal from them, either on the technology front or um, elsewhere. Um, on the macro scale, uh, beginning in April, there's going to be a super deduction 
that will cut companies' tax bills by 25p for every pound they invest in new equipment. Again, this sounds pretty good for tech. Um, it's going to be worth 25 billion overall to UK companies over the next two years. I've been um, reading about this. It's a bit of a controversial issue for tech, though, is, is it not? It is, yeah, because it's very hardware-based and it incentivizes investment in physical assets like plant and machinery, but it excludes things like uh, tech, you know, it excludes servers, cloud, or whatever. And so quite a few people were questioning why this provision is so ring-fenced and why doesn't it extend things like AI, cloud, and other, you know, tech um, infrastructure and services, which everyone agrees, I think, uh, what the country needs to get going um, economics-wise after the pandemic. Yeah, yeah, that's a strange one. Again, that's sort of prioritising, you know, um, almost manufacturing um, and uh, industries that, that like to have physical assets rather than just about um, everyone else. It's very hard, though. You're always going to, every budget, you're going to have winners and losers. And I think, you know, um, Rishi is playing with, um, or is trying to um, uh, improve the situation for lots of people whilst having, you know, whilst having less than no money. Um, having already been under austerity previously, our economy is now... Uh, pretty much wheezing out its death rattle, um, and at the same time, he's trying to you know make things better for for lots of people. So well, um, I mean, let's just hope we don't go back to austerity, right? I mean, the Tories were the ones who brought it in in the first place, uh, and we're going through another recession now. It might just be their panic response to take us back there. We we already saw tax rise, effectively tax rises on high earners, uh, which is not the way out of recession. Everyone, like economists globally, agree that. You need to spend your way out of the recession. The best way out is government borrowing. But Sunak seems to be sticking to the whole um, managing national debt like household debt, which is which is a very old-fashioned way of thinking. It's a very complex. It's a very complex issue um, uh, with lots of different levers to pull and lots of different outcomes and lots of different um, uh, opinions. I was quite pleased to see the corporation tax um, rises there because that's a very unconservative thing to do, and I think that's absolutely necessary. Um, I, I, I do think we need um, income tax rises as well. Um, that's just me getting into politics. Um, I think we could easily spend several hours um, arguing around this one. Um, but that is um, the the budget according to John Leonard. Um, so uh, we're um, we'll take that. One. One. Um, Tom, what have you been looking at? Yeah, uh, tangentially related in that it's also uh, related to our current situation and COVID. Um, it's about an opinion piece that I published earlier today uh, on a topic that first appeared on computing last year, which is vaccine passports. So it's the concept of a document that affords you the right to travel, even with most of the world still in lockdown, because you can prove that you are safe to do so. Sounds great on the face of it. Um, most people would probably agree that, yep, that's a really good idea, uh, but it's it's not as simple as just flashing a passport on the border. Uh, forgery is still a massive issue when it comes to paper documents, of course. Something so potentially valuable would, would definitely be a target. Okay, so um, are, are, are we looking at when you say a vaccine passport? Is it is it a is it a physical thing or is is it a digital? It should be a digital thing. Which which way have they gone? Well, we don't know yet because they haven't gone either way. Um, the okay. government has, has remained fairly close-lipped on this one. They, they say they want to do one, but what form it will take, uh, no one knows. The EU is also uh, pushing forward with a, a vaccine passport initiative that also includes, um, for the people who don't want to have a vaccine, they will accept a, ne uh, a negative COVID test, which brings up a whole other bucket of worms. Um, for example when does the test need to have taken place? It will probably guarantee that you're safe in an airport, but 
two weeks later, having a negative COVID test is, uh, is no guarantee of safety. Um, now, is it digital? Uh, is that the best way of doing it? That's a major challenge. There's been a lot of proposed digital solutions, uh, a lot of third-party digital ID solutions, but they would need to go into your healthcare records to prove that you've had the vaccine. And I don't think I need to go into why it's a bad idea to give a third-party company access to your healthcare records. Uh, uh, it, it can be it can be done securely, but usually it isn't, especially when our NH NHS is, is, is involved. They tend to sort of prefer a privacy disaster rather than anything else. I also like the way you conveyed your strength of feeling on the topic by using uh, the phrase bucket of worms. Rather, it's not just a can of worms, it's a bucket of worms. It's bigger than that. I think that was uh, very evocative. Well, that's, that's certainly the, um, the feeling in the CIOs that I talk to about it. Uh, they, they are surprisingly for tech CIOs, they are not a fan of a purely technical solution. Uh, they would prefer to see a sort of middle ground, uh, but I'll, I'll get to that in a moment. I also want to talk about, you mentioned the NHS there. Um, there's another option, which is to tie this functionality into the existing NHS app. Uh, but one person I talked to called it a fantastically dangerous and stupid idea to do so. Um, so there are some fairly complex steps to enable your medical records in the NHS app. But you'd almost certainly need to do them to to get your vaccine records. Uh, but that gives the app full access to your healthcare records, and then you'd just be handing over at the border to any foreign official who asked for it, uh, which is also perhaps not a good uh, good idea. Well, you, can, you can see that yeah, you can um, see the risks if, there. If COVID mm. ends up being like 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 flu in, in that it um, mutates quite a bit every year or every two years. Um, and then you can catch it again. Maybe it'll be a different form, perhaps it'll be weaker, whatever. But you're going to have to get this passport again each time. Well, or something. how's that going to work? I mean, it sounds like a absolute potentially, uh, although at that point, you would think that most people we, we will have reached herd immunity at that point. And that's a bit of a dirty word in the scientific community because of the possibility for variations of mutations. Uh, that we've seen so far. However, if enough people have the vaccine, then it will limit the ability of the virus to mutate and uh, and thus spread uh, with new variations like the South Africa variant, the Brazil variant, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so uh, Stuart, you asked what the other solution is. Um, there is a middle ground. It involves tying the two together, the paper and the digital. So you would tie a paper document to a digital identity. So maybe your passport number or adding a QR code to the phys physical certificate. So officials can scan that for digital verification that you are who you say you are and you have had a vaccine. Uh, if you lost the paper part, then it might not be the end of the world because uh, you could just have a picture of the QR code on your smartphone. The nice part about that is it's fairly low tech. So it could be, uh, it could be used worldwide, even in countries that don't have much digital infrastructure. Would there be some sort of worry that this wouldn't be rolled back after the crisis is over? I mean, this is always the worry um, around anything that um, infringes on privacy, liberty. You know, it, it's quite easy to introduce them, even if it's mm. not very easy in this case, but uh, yeah. rolling it back. Yeah, and uh, that's still very much up in the air. And uh, one, <laughs> you've put me to a really good closing point, actually, because one final uh, uh, expert I talked to just said we hope so and that's it at the moment they, they we just have to hope that uh the spread will be limited and um and that 
if we do have to have these vaccine passports, uh, that that we won't need them for long, effectively. Um, the window in which we can we will need them for domestic travel is certainly closing because vaccinations are happening very quickly. But uh, yes, we probably will need them potentially uh, for international travel for the coming months, let's say. Uh, after that, where it goes is, is really anybody's guess. Mm, watch this space. Well, we'll certainly be, be, be continuing to cover this one um, on computing. Uh, I think we're going to move on now to our final story of the week. Uh, this one's uh, one I'm going to present to you. Um, this this sort of um, carries on from the the previous um, stories I've highlighted on this on this podcast, in, 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 including the um, the favicons, the little icons at the top of your um, browser that it turns out c- uh, can track you. Um, the uh, the pixels, the tracking pixels that appear in emails that uh, that can tell people whether or not you've read the email, how many times you've opened it, that kind of thing. So this one's about um, about cookies um, and uh, what they can do, how they can track your, your your browser history. So the story is that Google plans to to stop selling ads that rely on users' web browsing history. Um, so the idea is that's going to help push the digital advertising industry away from the use of indiv- individualized tracking um, as calls grow for more privacy online. Individualized tracking obviously very unpopular um, with privacy um, advocates. So um, Google said actually last year that they're going to phase out support for third-party cookies by 2022. Um, and once they're gone from Chrome, uh, they'll neither create nor use any other user-level identifiers in its products to track people as they uh, browse across um, websites. However, there's a big caveat to that. That only covers um, ad tools uh, and unique identifiers for websites, not mobile apps. So there's still that huge part of the Google economy um, and the huge and the digital ad ecosystem that won't be affected by this. But some some might see this as a, as a step forward that um, you won't get that sort of individualized tracking um, so much on uh, on browsers on sort of desktop tops at any rate. It seems fairly unlikely that Google is going to suddenly give up the um, the means of tracking us given how dependent they are in their their market model um, on our personal data. Yeah I mean Google's, Google's obviously making a big thing of it saying you know aren't we great aren't we interested in your privacy aren't we not evil um, because we're we're not going to be tracking you um, individually anymore but of course they're not just they're not just you know giving up the money and giving up their um, that side of their ecosystem they're, they're proposing a, a suite of alternatives um, one of which is called uh, Flock, which stands for um, Federated Learning of Cohorts um, and the idea is that uh, instead of being individually tracked uh, across the web and seeing um, uh, sort of individually targeted apps um, it's this sort of this builds up a picture of the sorts of sites you visit um, and then you get put into basically um, a uh, sort of a, uh, a container or a, um, a sort of a, um, a, a cohort or a group um, of other people with similar browsing habits um, and so you get groups there and it's I mean this can, this can be really specific um, so uh, it, it, it goes down to the, the expectation is that it'll be you know roughly a thousand people um, in each cohort, so be, you'll be tracked with roughly a thousand other people, um, and so which is you know which is better than individualized tracking, um, but there are you know there are other concerns with that as well. Do we expect these cohorts to become smaller and and therefore more targeted, and then we get back to the same situation just by a different name? I mean. 
in a way, yes. Um, so I, I think the idea is that it'll be deliberately uh, manufactured uh, so that it so, so so that they can't be so that they can't go less than a thousand. So you, so if you're in a cohort that's that's too small, it'll be grouped in with another cohort, so it goes up to a thousand again because the feeling is that any less than that and it's too um, individually tracked. But the problem is. Um, you've heard of browser fingerprinting. This this idea that everyone has sort of unique unique settings, um, unique aspects to their own browser, which means they can be fingerprinted and your browser can be tracked across websites. Eventually, your browser can be used as a way to identify you specifically. At the moment, um, if so, if someone malicious wants to go out there and identify you, say you're using Chrome, well, they, they, their starting point is every single Chrome user. They're trying to track you. They're trying to narrow you down from every single Chrome user in the world. Well, if you're if you're in a cohort of a thousand other people, their starting point is well, Tom Allen's in, the, in, in this cohort, so I've now only got to identify you out of another 999 other people, which is a lot easier. So um, it, this, isn't, this is by no means saying that individual web tracking uh, is, is going to stop. It's just, it's just one small part of it. Uh, from Google is going to change. So it's, um, it's yeah, I, I, I wouldn't start, you know, privacy advocates shouldn't start um, celebrating in the streets just yet, and not just because of lockdown. Um, I don't think this is really the answer they've been looking for. But, you know, you could argue that um, at least Google is feeling some sort of pressure about it because they're starting to respond and trying to do something. Actually, um, there was a, a separate story um, on uh, privacy search engines and this involved the, the browser called Brave um, and they've actually bought a search engine called Tailcat that was de delivered by, uh, developed by Clixie um, and the idea of this isn't to try and compete with Google, it's to try and reinvent the old idea of um, vertical search which you might remember where say you work in the medical profession about, about a decade ago this was kind of a, quite a big thing um, you'd have a search engine that would search medical terms specifically and categorize them up. Um, and they say because there's absolutely no point in trying to uh, compete with Google, really, because their, their index is so big. Um, obviously, the other one is Bing. And most of the privacy-focused uh, search engines actually use Google or Bing. So StartPage uses Google, the Google API, and they've got to obfuscate for results. DuckDuckGo does the same thing with Bing. Whereas Brave is going to try and do something different. Um, I don't give them much chance, to be honest, because the problem with vertical search was that pretty, pretty quickly Google became better than it. So um, yeah. you're basically only searching one little bucket and Google was searching that bucket better anyway, which is why the whole thing fell apart. And I don't see why that wouldn't happen again. Um, but I don't know very much about the model that they have uh, in mind. So it's definitely one to watch anyway. Yeah, definitely. It, it does make me, when you talk about vertical search, it just, uh, the, the thing that immediately flashes into my mind is like the very early sort of Netscape browser when you can click on like, what do you want? Shopping, holidays, or fun, you know, there's those, the, those buttons that took you to various parts of the web when the web was about 17 pages big. Um, that's, what, that's what immediately leaps in my head when you say vertical search. So it, it doesn't make me think, wow, this is a, this is the um, heady nirvana we're heading to. It sounds like we're going back to the 90s, but, um, <laughs> but maybe that's unfair. Maybe it'll prove to be better. I wish them luck anyway. Yeah, yeah, certainly. Yeah, it's, it's a good an, an initiative. Um, brilliant. I think that's uh, about it for this week, then. Uh, we've certainly rambled on for long enough. Um, so just reminds me to thank you, the audience, for listening and thank Tom and John for your insights. And we'll be back again next week for more Thanks Zuck, It's Friday. <laughs>